Spy Cops Info Podcast. Looking at Britain's secret undercover political police who infiltrated campaign and activist groups. Episode 3. SDS Officer HN345. Alias Peter Fredericks. Deployed in 1971 only. I'm Chris. Uh, yeah, so welcome. So today we're going to talk about Peter Fredericks. Um, Chris, can you tell us just a bit about Peter Fredericks? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, what we know about him is, is basically his his police career. Uh, and he joined the Metropolitan Police in the mid-1960s. Um, we think at a local... I'm, I'm kind of surmised that he started off somewhere in West London, maybe Notting Hill area. Uh, there's a couple of little clues for that. But anyway, yes, he, st- he started up as a normal uniform PC. And then at some point after that, he was asked by a senior officer if he'd be interested in doing some kind of undercover work, which he agreed to. And that's described to, it's kind of glossed over the actual words that he used, but it's, it's, it's basically described as street crime work. So I'm guessing kind of uh, dealing with maybe um, fencing of stolen goods, um, low-level drug dealing, um, you know, maybe sex work as well. Though it's not, none of those, yeah, it's not specified. Okay, so he's done bits and pieces, um, and he's done that kind of undercover work. And then how did things change where he sort of changed his focus? Well, it, it came out of that, that street crime work. Um, somewhere along the way, he picked up little bits of information um, regarding um, campaigning stuff, specifically anti-apartheid campaigning, um, and also uh, black power um, stuff as well which just happened he just happened to come across which is one of the one of the things maybe it makes me think it's, it was in the Notting Hill Ladbroke Grove area of London because there was lots of stuff going on around there at the time it was very much like a, a radical bit of London lots of squatting uh, and other, other campaigning VSC the Vietnam Solidarity campaign of course had a very big branch there um, alongside other stuff as well as yeah famously of course the Mangrove Nine will go on briefly to, maybe to talk about in a bit as well okay cool so he did lots of that kind of stuff and then how did he move focus I guess how did he get to be um, working more on sort of yeah what, what came to be known as the SDS the special demonstration squad that's right well he moved then from uniform to special branch um, obviously within the metropolitan Politan police. So, with special, it seems that he got tapped up by special branch, so to speak, uh, because of, of these tidbits of information he picked up about the anti-apartheid campaigning, anti-apartheid movement. And according to him, at least, he received for this a commendation from MI5 from the security services, um, as he said himself. Fredericks, when he was giving uh, evidence at the hearings um, in, in November, there seemed, appears to be no record of that. Now, when you talk about records of stuff that he's done or says he's done or says like commendations he said he's received and things like that, like there's very few like sort of records, formal records of this stuff. So how, yeah, how reliable is that? Well, I mean, there's some stuff which, so in his, both his written statement and also in when he gave his live evidence, he refers to his career, um, record of career at the Met, but we're not privy to that. We don't, that's not that document has not been published so we're, we're we're going by his word really mm-hmm. okay so just his word there's no other corroboration yeah. and that yeah and that issue is 
exacerbated by this officer because not only because there's only actually two reports from his um, period with the, <clears throat> the special demonstration squad that were actually that they actually found um, and also that, that were published but maybe actually going one step backwards so prior to um, within special branch he, he seems he first joined c squad now c squad basically they, they were um they monitored p- political campaigns specifically or at least as he describes in the trotskyist and anarchist areas um and they did i suppose they covered the same air- areas of the sds but rather than going having a deep undercover persona they did i guess what you'd call standard plainclothes work so they would t- turn up to random political meetings and report on them. So I guess there might be, there often, there may have been some kind of subterfuge um, required in the sense, obviously, they didn't announce themselves as police officers, although they probably would have been thrown out of the meeting. But they, they didn't have an undercover persona as such. That Though it seems actually, you know, Frederick Scope, but he, when asked about his um, SDS, his undercover persona, Peter Frederick, he seemed to suggest that he had already developed some kind of basic story whilst he was doing his street crime work. And it, it, he, I think he hints at actually that his cover name for the SDS was actually created during this this work. And what about his like appearance? Because we know they all go through like these like appearance changeover like opposites of makeovers or whatever as i would describe That's it right. maybe yeah he, he it might have been that he had this kind of appearance before at least to some extent when he was doing his street crime work uh, but he describes himself definitely when he's with the sds as having a, a shea gravara mustache for instance okay nice <laughs> Just some of the descriptions from him from court, like um, some of his mannerisms when he speaks sounded a bit odd. Like apparently he liked to stick out his tongue a bit and things. Or sorry, during the hearing. And so I just find I'm trying to picture picture that. <laughs> but yeah, a bit funny. And so which groups was he sort of really focusing on? So I think it would be hard to say well, what his focus would have been had he... Had he um, done the normal, if you like, the standard four-year de- deployment? So I guess you could say, oh, the officers, the other officers who have been give give um, testimony, they describe as it takes quite a long time to get going to get get into the groups. When he was doing C Squad stuff, um, he oh, yeah, I wanted to talk about one of his reports. So I said there was only two SDS reports. Um, with his name on published, but there was actually five in total, and three of those were special branch reports. But before he went undercover with the SDS, and it was one of the, one of those which is, I guess, of of some interest, because just because it gives a bit of a background to what kind of things you get in a, a normal special branch report. Mm-hmm. And this, um, this was um, a report. His name is on, though I don't think he actually wrote it. It's a, a special branch report when he was with C Squad, uh, which is on um, the Socialist Labour League, which was a Trotskyist group, um, which would become, you more like to have heard of this, the Re- Workers' Revolutionary Party in 1973. And it's interesting, it's a 14-page long report on, on this on this confluence, which was actually held at the at Ali Pali in, in, in London. And it's, yeah, 14 pages, but that includes uh, like five or six pages of lists of names of, of all the attendees of, of the conference. And then not only that, but it also lists also the car regi- registrations and models, um, which is which 
the last rule, which is generally speaking not on um, special demonstration squad reports. But the reason I mention that um, is because that Fredericks later on, when he's asked what's the difference between normal special branch reporting and SDS reporting, um, and what he says is that um, normal special branch reports were a bit more selective in terms of what they reported were, whereas SDS reports reported absolutely everything now that perhaps that is the case in general but this report isn't a, a particularly good example of it because not only does it have all these names and and car registrations and models but it also mentions for instance that there was a pop group uh, called porcelain porcelain frog and the skull uh, entertained the attendees now if that isn't a bit of useless information in terms of what special branch uh, I'm mainly concerned with, I don't know what, what is. Um, oh, by the way, I've already looked up porcelain fr frog and the skull on the internet, and there is no, sadly no trace of them. Oh, that's, that's a bit disappointing. <laughs> but also, I mean, like how to, like, you know, that's, I don't know, like spending that much time getting all the car registration numbers, like how to like do that yeah. without standing out like a sore thumb and so this report is written by another special branch officer so it's unclear whether he and or frederick stood in the car park listing all the registration number plates themselves which you would have thought would have been a little bit conspicuous um or yeah there was other officers do, doing doing mm -hmm. that so they would have, i mean at this conference this conference is relatively big according mm -hmm. to to the, the report is like two thousand attendees there mm -hmm. so you know as well as the the band Porcelain Frog and the Skull, just giving them a, another mention there. Do you think they draw straws to see who gets to listen to the band and who gets to get the car registration numbers? Yeah, well, yeah, who knows? I mean, depends. They could be a really good band. Who knows? Okay, so that's his report on that one. Any more about reports? Well, I, I was going to mention that was the, that was a one rep out, report out of the three I was going to talk about pre-SDS um, but perhaps we go, you know, we'll, we'll go maybe talk about his brief career in a special special demonstration squad now. Yeah okay so that's good so special demonstration squad the whole podcast talks a lot about special demonstration squad he has such a short time in it really but um, he was involved I think in three like sort of a couple main areas um, can you tell us which groups he was involved in? Well the reports there's only yeah there's only two two reports and they're both on a group called the Black Defence Committee and they were a solidarity group formed from another Trotskyist group um, they were the the Spart Spartacus Youth they, and they were the youth group of um, a, a slightly more famous Trotskyist group called the International Marxist Group uh, Tarek Ali of course was a, a leading member of that who gave evidence at the uh, he was the first one of the first civilian witnesses at the um, undercover policing inquiry of course um, and yeah they were a solidarity group and they formed after the mangrove restaurant protest where nine lots of people got arrested but nine people went on trial which of course was recently um, a really good film made by Steve McQueen which was televised on um, iPlayer recently still on there as far as I know so um, I won't talk too much about that because um, there's a lot of information out there but yes. say if we have listeners from like other places, just a brief summary of that. Was that part of a campaign of harassment um, and sort of what the, what some people yeah. now currently choose to deny, but the systematic discrimination yeah, against well, people the, the, So the Mangrove was a restaurant in um, Ladbroke Grove rather than Notting Hill. I might be wrong on that. My my West London geography is not, not the best, but it was run by a guy called Frank 
Frank Critchlow is very much like a, a place which welcomed um, the predominantly Caribbean migrants there who, who got maybe got less than a friendly um, less than a friendly welcome at other places in the area. I mean it was continuously yeah, it was harassed by the police. Um, of which is why the protest happened, and then there was a fa- the, the famous Bangrove Nine trial. Um, and the police obviously didn't do a very good job um, during that time period at all. Well, it depends what you mean a good job. I mean, they they harassed the the restaurant out of business eventually. So in that sense, from their perspective, they I guess if that's what they wanted to do, it was a good job. Yeah, not good for you know normal people. No. Cool. Um, okay. So yeah. And so what? What was his infiltration? Well, I mean, it was the, the two reports are quite standard. They're, they're sort of public meetings, and there's you know a reasonable number of people at them. One of the people who addressed. So this is we're talking September 1971. Both these reports date to, uh, and one of the meetings was ad- addressed by a, a man called Carl Brecker. He was a, a black South African student, and he, unsurprisingly, talked about the South African apartheid regime. Um, and I just wanted to talk about Carl Brecker recently um, a little bit more, because he, he stayed in the UK until around 1980, um, at which point he applied for British citizenship, and he was refused by the then Home Secretary for undisclosed reasons. So, you know, obviously we don't know this, but it's but one of the things we, we do know about uh, undercover policing and, and the effects it had at the time, the I guess invisible at the time, invisible now, was was about the blacklisting campaign. So people who were spied on trade union activists, um, some of the information that undercover officers fed back to special branch and then fed back to the the um, private or uh, the sort of blacklisting agency, I should say, the Consulting Association. And that affected people's careers and jobs and whole lives because they couldn't get work because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, reading about Carl Brecker, you kind of realise it, obviously, trade unionists is one category of people, but what about people who were, didn't have British citizenship but you know wanted to exercise their, their rights to protest, etc., and they got caught up in this? And this guy... Carl Brecker, as far as I'm aware, he didn't have any kind of criminal record or anything. So it does lead us to wonder maybe the whole reason why he got refused citizenship was simply because he he had a special branch file opened up on him. Yeah, we don't know, do we? But it is definitely questionable given the historic precedent. And the fact that the reason why he was refused was undisclosed to him does like lend itself to that. Because that would, you know, this kind of information is classified and so they can simply refuse to say why. Um, because of that so yeah and I think that in many ways seems problematic because I think one of the things that's really clear in everything that comes out is that do you you know if just the way they're sort of willing to um, reduce your your rights as as a person as if you're active if an activist even which is like you know ridiculous and then on top of that if you are then in this kind of situation they they just have so much more power as well on top of you so that's yeah exactly and, and it, as I say you know I guess, despite all the shortcomings of the inquiry, at least this is bringing stuff more into light. And these kind of details are one of one of thousands that we'll, we'll yeah we'll hear about. One of the campaigns that we knew he was involved in, sort of infiltrating, was Operation Omega. Can you tell us, um, yeah, what 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 that was involved with? Yeah, so this is around 1970. So it's um, around the time that um, uh, what became Bangladesh and what was called then East Pakistan. Um, 
had an independent struggle and, and, and broke away from from then from from Pakistan. Um, so an Operation Omega appeared to be some kind of humanitarian um, organization that campaigns around that issue. Um, he spent such a short time undercover with that group, but he wasn't massive. Um, he wasn't involved the hierarchy of the group, so to say. But what was he? What was what information was he gaining? What was he? Um... We're not really sure what information he gained because um, there's no there's no um, extant um, special branch reports. It does it does seem though that he came across an activist from um, one of these campaign groups surrounding the Bangladesh independence struggle, and it when he was a, a sea branch officer officer and he he managed to um inveigle his way into the group or get to know a particular person that he met on a demonstration a woman okay and so he spent some time getting to know this woman that's right yeah so this yeah it's, it's sometimes it's hard to say which person they're talking about the reason for this is that all the names are redacted so i assume this is the same person we're talking about um throughout so um this woman he describes as very intelligent um and a journalist so to, and he goes out perhaps you might say controversially by himself with her to a restaurant and he's actually asked about this in the inquiry about whether there was any romantic sexual um factor in this relationship which he um, unsurprisingly denied mm-hmm. okay but so he had dinner with this woman he found her really interesting anything else happened? yeah well then he goes on to say that maybe he he suspected that she wasn't all that she seemed um that yeah and it's hinted at he doesn't actually it's hinted at he doesn't actually say it in so many words that that that, that perhaps she's well he describes her as um being um from the united states and together i think he leads us to 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 conclude ourselves that perhaps she, she was some kind of cia operative Okay, so he had that contact, that interaction and things. Um, but he was never sort of very high up, but he, he informed on this group and things a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and, and as he describes himself, I mean, it was like a humanitarian uh, group. So, you know, obviously not even a political, not even a political group. So what would be the purpose of like that kind of information? Like that's a completely legitimate thing to do if well, there's humanitarian issues. Yeah, well, it seemed like there was some interest from the MI5 to find out information about this, which may, um, certainly, obviously we don't know um, the CIA, <laughs> this woman was from the CIA, but this, 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 uh, but we do know at the time, having done a, a little bit of digging on it, the CIA were very much interested um, in finding out what was going on in that region for geopolitical reasons, the Cold War obviously on, so every every place in the world was a potential battleground you know west versus east etc so and they certainly had an interest in in that particular conflict mm-hmm. i mean the cia have a long and well documented unlike him but a well documented history of uh, involvement and in, in these kinds of things around the world so. yeah of course you know just you know a few you know in the early 70s there was the the, the frank church committee which investigated the cia um and uh, uh, of the world, but obviously, but so, so certainly, it's not. Although um, there's not too much evidence to to first definitely conclude that um, Peter Fredericks was going out for the dinner with a CIA agent. Um, mm-hmm. There is, I think, it is plausible on the level as 
you know, there probably were CIA agents in London at the time interested in, in Bangladesh. Yeah, it's, but it's almost like if she was a CIA agent, what would she have gained from having dinner with him? I don't know. Yeah, well, maybe she realised that he was in it. I mean, who knows? I mean, it gets it gets a bit like a too, yeah, like a spy novel. You know, it was yeah. late sixties, so you know, a lot, yeah, spy novel. That's when a lot, yeah, the classic spy novels, of course, were written. So, um, yeah, indeed, indeed, um, yeah. Okay, good. So, um, any other reports or things? Here? Although the two, there's two special demonstration squads reports were specifically on the Black Defence Committee. Um, in his written statement and his oral testimony, he does, he does suggest that he, he perhaps was involved with other groups who, which doesn't quite sound like an organised Trotskyist group. Um, so I was going to quote a little bit here. Um, this is from his statement. It says, my main link, link with such groups, Black Power groups, that is, was through a man who supported the, the US Black Power movement. I do not know if he ever went to the US. He worked with figures from the Black Power movement in the UK. I got the impression that the intention was to unite the Black Power movements in Britain and the US, although the US movement was wealthier and more established. This is, yeah, I'm quoting from him. Mm-hmm. And he mentions that he would go to Speaker's Corner every Sunday. Now, we do know that um, the leading lights of the British Black Power Movement regularly went to Speaker's Corner uh, every Sunday. Um, and he, he goes on t- to suggest that after Speaker's Corner, he, w- he would go for a tea or coffee um, just around the corner at a coffee shop in Marble Arch, um, very close to where the Amber Hotel is, of course. Um, where the um, inquiry is being live streamed to in a, this next week. Uh, um, and he, he says, I never got to know these others well, but I, be, I wanted to develop the re- relationship. These are, there were certain groups in society who, who wished to advance their objectives. So, and, yeah, and he also mentions hanging out in, in Notting Hill Gate, Portobello area, and go to private me- meetings in, in houses and pubs. And he, would, he said he would play pool and cultivate relations that way. And it seems a lot more casual just hanging around than going to an organised meeting. But um, I did a little bit of research around there and asked a few people who were more knowledgeable in, black, in British Black Power movement. I, it, none of the groups seemed to fit from what, what he was saying, um, really. So it's a bit of a mystery, really. I mean, to be fair, I mean, this was 50 years ago, so maybe I think, you know... Give him a, give him a bit of a break in the sense that it was a long time ago. Um, so yeah, it's unclear, but it's obviously of interest, especially given um, people's desire to hear about the history of the British Black Power movement, whether there was a some an infiltrator at that stage. Mm-hmm. So basically, he spent time hanging out with people and going to some meetings. Yeah, I mean, he describes himself not in these words, not very as such, very much a people person, someone who could get on with people uh, very well. That was his. I mean, he uh, again. I'm not using his own words. He he definitely was very co- confident of himself, um, and he <laughs> um, there was a, there's a, a later uh, undercover who, who got the the nickname John James Blonde, but this guy, Peter Fredericks, very much fancied himself, I think, as some kind of master spy. I think it's going to be fair to say. Yeah, it sounds like it, definitely. Um, great. And so in terms of, like, so he sounded like he's got a bit of, like, just very um, unguided time and things almost, like lots of spare time on his hands. 
almost. Um, so what was his sort of supervision, guidance and training like for all of this? Um, he described it as other officers do at that time as very much like a hands-off approach. Um, they, they received no formal training whatsoever, really, uh, and sort of very little ethical guidance. Um, so you, you would have said probably going out to dinner with somebody by yourself probably wouldn't have, you know, would have been out out of the question but um, that's what he did so i think like one of the things like his um i guess his judgment sometimes seems a little bit um not 100 percent, especially looking at it nowadays from a lens that's more informed especially around sort of um uh, some of the the abuse of women that's happened because of these undercovers um there was one incident where i think he went back to a woman's flat three years after being not undercover anymore well, it was actually after he left the Met completely, and and that we know is like after the mid seventies. So it would have been at least three, three, three or four years um, after he was deployed as an SDS officer. Um, and yeah, he said he popped round to he happened to be in the area and he popped round to her flat, mm-hmm. which seems a bit odd. Um, so as it turned out, she wasn't there. In fact, um, as he was informed um, by someone who was living there, who's again where because the individual's name's redacted, so it sounds like this the person who answered was either a relative or a friend of, of this woman. Um, and he, she, he, he was informed by her that he, she had, in fact, committed suicide, um, sadly. So, um, but, I mean, again, he was questioned at, the t- questioned at the inquiry whether this, you know, this relationship was... A closer one that that he was letting in, or was it romantic? And again, of course, he denied that. And but it just seems a very you know, given you know, it was a, a a relationship he had with somebody whilst he was in his undercover persona, three years at least, three to four years previous, just seems a very odd thing to do, even as he said on a whim. I was trying to think about this a bit because I remember like you know time before mobile phones and time before internet, you know you know, time with like phone books and things like massive phone books for everybody. Like, is that something you might have done more in that era? I don't know. It still seems creepy to me. It, it does. I mean, if you had like a, a longer and a deeper friendship with somebody, uh, it, it does seem, it, it would seem probably like relatively normal. Mm-hmm. But he didn't, you know, his relationship with this woman was purely based on deception that he, you know, mm-hmm. he was an undercover officer. It wasn't like he was, she was a mate of his. No, and he was undercover for, you know, not even a full year. How well did he get to know somebody if he was mostly sort of socialising in groups and spending a lot of time playing pool? Like Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, it, a, a comment he made, because um, he was asked about sexual relationships, whether whether he was aware of that at the time, which he, he said no, as all the officers from this um, sort of early phase, 1968-71, none of them... Uh, admit to any knowledge whatsoever of course um but he 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 made a comment um that uh when he heard about somewhat that some officers some sds officers uh, and later officers had uh, been in sexual relationships he made a comment that um uh, as with a, a, a drugs undercover officer it's not unreasonable for uh, officers to sample the products yeah um, and that that's obviously a horribly callous thing to say. Um, you know, I'm not really sure how much I need to say say about that, really. But there's also another element to it, but obviously because we know that he was, a, as he put it, a street crime uh, undercover officer previously, which would have 
lightly dealt with drugs so maybe he was referring to himself sampling the products mm-hmm. um literally um so we obviously don't know that but mm-hmm. he I, I suppose he's he, he seemed to have a lack of boundaries i think as, as what we can surmise from all that yeah i think lack of boundaries is fair to say with a penchant for a little bit of sexism thrown in i think uh, is a fair enough assessment and so how did all this stuff come to an end yeah so um there's two versions, it seems to be. I mean, we we only have Frederick's um, telling of both, but he, he kind of gives what he perceives to be the official version, which is on file, and what he was told in, in, in confidence. So according to um, the, his um, Met career report, um, which obviously, as, as I mentioned earlier, we don't have access to. He was asked to leave the SDS for a couple of reasons. One, that he wasn't very good at report writing. And, and secondly, he compromised um, another undercover officer who was on um, close observation duties. Um, so that's, that's what, what he what he makes out is the pretext um, for his um, removal from the SDS. But he gives another more, I suppose you could say, I don't know, interesting <laughs> explanation. What he says is that um, one of his job referees um, that he used to join Special Branch, as it turned out, was a, a Soviet double agent. <laughs> Sorry. Marshall I mean, he did say that there. on oath. So to some extent, we, we, we can't, we can't def- definitely say that's rubbish because I mean, actually when he was um, on giving evidence, he did slightly make it um, as a, maybe that was the case rather than that was definitely the case. But according to him, um, yeah, his, uh, his senior officer to- told him that as much. Uh, so his senior officer told him that his job referee could have been a Soviet double agent. Okay, nod, nod, wink, wink kind of thing. And that's kind of what he then went on to say. So he was a little bit non-committal to that or? Yeah, I mean, if we examine that, obviously we have no proof either way or whether that happened or not. Um, One of the things that would be strange though, if he, if it was a security um, issue, uh, it would be, it seems strange that he was allowed to carry on in special branch in another role for another two, couple of years at least. So, I mean, obviously, Special Branch, they did other things. So, for instance, they, they've done close protection, bodyguarding, and they also vetted people at ports as well. So I guess they're, you could, but they're, they're not unsensitive areas and, and, and all Special Branch officers would have had uh, access to um, confidential classified information in that sense. So if he was a security risk, then why, did, why was he allowed to serve in, in carry on serving in special branch but this is something he has said under oath so he has yeah so that's interesting because that you know he's a former police officer he takes oaths very seriously i presume so that's a significant thing to say under oath i believe and if yeah. he thinks if he thinks it enough to say it under oath then that is um yeah yeah interesting, I mean, and probably a far more interesting life than mine <laughs> really yeah i mean he yeah and he was pretty in his these are questions that he answered um, in his witness statement and to some extent, as I say, in his testimony. And the, these were, if you like, voluntary answers because all the, all the um, former undercovers, they're given a set of questions by the inquiry to answer. So he didn't really probably need to go into such detail in, in this. And he, he seems, 
I mean, in his statement, he makes clear that he was very unhappy about being removed from the SDS. Okay. And from a more practical point of view, if we were being like a looking back at his working career history, his his report report writing skills weren't very good, so he wasn't great at that. I mean, in some ways, that does seem an an odd thing to to be removed from the SDS to be on on, mm-hmm. on in balance. This is because although the, a lot of the the SDS officers give different accounts of how the reports were created. So, for instance, Doug, Egl- Doug Edwards, who we talked about in episode one, he very much suggested that the reports were uh, a, a joint effort, that you know the undercovers replied, supplied some of the information, but they were in fact typed up and uh, amended by other officers in the back office, etc. Um, so I, I guess to that extent, it maybe it does seem a bit odd he was removed because of his... Um, um, report writing skills or lack of them because he was quite clear despite the fact that we have so few of his reports he wrote several reports a week and I think he said he wrote them and somebody else typed them up and somebody else would choose what was important from that so that sort of implies again there was that joint effort to it so is there so his personality came out as being a bit of a you know um, larger than life or at least believing his life was larger than life kind of uh I suppose, yeah, given that we're talking about quite a short period um, within the special branch, let alone the SDS, it does does seem quite incident-filled. You know, we've got a a CIA agent and a Russian double agent. And none of the other people so far have said they've had these kinds of contacts? Um, Certainly not with the CIA, no. Okay, so again... Obviously, as we know now from what's been said, um, the SDS... That there is, you know, quite a lot of um, MI five involvement uh, with the SDS, um, which we're going to hear about more um, in 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 phase two when it starts um, this week, as we're speaking now. Good. Okay. Fabulous. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up? No, I don't think so. Um, I think we covered everything. Great. Okay. Well, thanks for your time today, Chris. Thank you. For more information on this topic, please visit spycops.info where you can subscribe to our newsletter, follow us on Twitter, join our Facebook group and a lot more. We're grateful to the Campaign Opposing Police Surveillance for their financial support in allowing us to buy microphones. Hopefully we'll improve more. If you'd like to support the podcast, please get in touch.